completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You're not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Welcome to Unbalanced Views. This is a mostly American history podcast where I, my name is Brian. I studied history in grad school. I taught it for a number of years, like a decade. And in each of our episodes, I try to teach my friend Mike Azarinos a little history because friend or not, he is completely ignorant. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing well, completely ignorant, but this man teaches me very little. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? I'm well, I'm well. Uh, I'm excited because uh, today is the, the final uh, episode of our Elsie Siegel Chinatown murder mystery extravaganza. We're going to, uh, to finally uh, get some answers here at the end. Um, None of them being where Leon Ling was because we don't know, uh -huh. but we're going to, we've got a couple surprises and um, we're going to really, um, we're going to look and, and see how the police do and uh, what a good job they do trying to track down this guy and how they don't embarrass themselves internationally at all. And uh, we're going to look at some things that uh, show that they just are doing a top notch job, making sure that they really look closely at Leon Ling's picture and they, they make sure they get their man. They get the right guy we go. every time in today's episode. Good. I love it. Very accurate, then. I like this one. So uh, just a real quick, just a real quick uh, summary to, to bring everybody back up to speed. We wrapped up the last episode looking at all of these places of interracial interaction between Chinese men and white women, particularly uh, Chinese restaurants or what they call chop suey restaurants and laundries, Chinese laundries. And the Protestant missions. And we kind of finished up with a little discussion about interracial relationships and how the press and all dealt with them. Uh, good times all around. Met one of my favorite people in this whole story, Mrs. Young. And if you recall, that's kind of where we left off was right around there talking about how the press and how the bourgeois newspaper reading public uh, kind of discovered that there were interracial marriages all around them that they hadn't realized. And uh, that caused them great, uh, great concern because you can't have that. Uh, That's right. You got to protect them, ladies. So with that, cool. I think we're all up to speed. You remember, you know where we're going. You got it all down, Mike. You're looking for Lee. Where is he at? Where's that bastard? It, it kills me that you keep calling him Lee. It, it's like a little part of me dies each time you say it. His name is Leon. Lee, Lee, uh, Lee Ling, Lee Ling. I, I, except he's Leon Ling and, uh, you know. <laughs> Anyway, and or William L. Leon. You can call him William if you like. Billy Leon. Billy. Billy. Yep. His name's Billy. Billy on Ling. Billy. Billy Ling. Okay. <laughs> just, Billy Ling, just, baby. Where's absolutely killing me. Where's this um, guy at? I'm not sure why it drives me so crazy, but every time you say Lee Lig, I die a little bit inside. <laughs> um, it really is. It, it's just absolutely killing me. I, I knew a guy why. named Leon, and, and he went by Lee. And I thought, well, this guy, he's Asian, so he's got to go by Lee. And his last name's Ling. 
Li Ling. It just sounds so much better. I don't even understand the rationale <laughs> where like, well, since he's Asian. <laughs> right. He's not going by Leon. He's going by Lee. For, <laughs> that, I don't think. I, I mean, that, 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 that's but his much, name is Leon. <laughs> maybe his parents named him Leon. I assure you, he tells his friends he's Lee. <laughs> he's the, remember. He introduces this, himself as Lee. This man is the Chinese Don Juan. True. <laughs> maybe maybe he goes by, by Don. <laughs> Don Juan. Okay. So let's jump into the cop drama and uh, I'm going to paint a scene for you. Imagine Ooh. if you will. The police entering Leon Ling's apartment. Okay. They find Elsie Siegel's mangled, rotten corpse stuffed in a chest. One of the cops turns to his superior and says, we better put an APB out so this psycho doesn't get away. The boss dramatically removes his sunglasses and says, I'd say we better get him boxed in. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> we could do this one way. We could do this two ways. Yes, 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 yes. This would be CS. That's the way this would be done. CSI New York, right? In reality, of course, Leon Ling was never found or boxed in. So let's look at this astonishing getaway. Elsie Siegel had no funeral service, only an internment at, uh, internment at Woodlawn Cemetery on June 21st that was attended by her father her two brothers and an uncle. It had been three days since the body was found and Ling at that point was missing more than a week. Inspector James McCafferty, head of the New York City Detective Bureau, boasted to the press that the quote, coast to coast manhunt, end quote, was one of the largest ever assembled. Quote, if Leon escapes finally, it will be the most remarkable getaway in police history. Police of all cities are working together. The entire country may well be likened to an enormous rat trap with Leon hiding somewhere in the circle. Every possible avenue of escape is watched day and night. When he tries to make a break, he will be caught. Police and citizens alike believed Leon Ling would be quickly apprehended. There's a there's a lesson about hubris in that whole quote. He'll never get away. It would be the most <laughs> most amazing escape in history. Good. We got a Houdini on our hands. We're going to talk about Houdini a little later. Good. Cut to, you know, a hundred years later, no Leon Ling. All right. <laughs> <laughs> now, any day now. They're going to get him any day now. Right. Now, the first descriptions of Ling and his neighbor Chong Sing emphasized Americanized looks and clothing. And that led to a spike in harassment for Chinese men and other Asian men who wore Americanized clothing. Four days after the first descriptions, police updated their bulletin saying Ling, quote, may now be wearing Chinese costume and have on a false cue, end quote. A cue was the, you've probably seen this, the long braided ponytail hairstyle that mm-hmm. was common mm-hmm. among Chinese men at the time. Yep. So the first description is Ling is wearing Americanized clothes, mm-hmm. Americanized haircut and all that. Yep. A couple days later, they're like, well, now be dressed like in traditional Chinese clothes and have a fake cue so he'll look like a traditional Chinese immigrant. Mm-hmm. So basically, the police have, over the course of four days, basically said, anybody Chinese. That's who we're looking, we're looking for, anybody Chinese. Right? Okay. Very helpful. Mm-hmm. The new description, of course, exposed all Chinese men now to harassment. Any Chinese man could be stopped and questioned or worse. The fugitives' photographs were published and distributed around the country, but 
This didn't seem to narrow the number of Chinese men that get caught up in the dragnet. Then the NYPD began circulating a very long written description of both men, including their age, height, weight, and appearance, especially Leon Ling. Chong Sing was merely described as having, quote, a smooth face, short hair, American style, dresses like an American, end quote. Leon Ling, however, was described as more Americanized, as one who, quote, talks good English, wore patent leather shoes, tight-fitting trousers, and carried a prized gold hunting case watch with the initials WLL, end quote. They also pointed out that he went by the name William L. Leon, as if to sound even more American and less Chinese, implying a kind of deceitful nature. <laughs> the press went even farther than the police. They described Ling's flashy clothes, his jewelry, oh, no. and his sexual desirability. They associated him with one of the two typical urban stereotypes of the time, the dandy and the sport. The New York Tribune claimed that Ling was a, quote, Chinese sport, end quote, who worked as a, quote, steerer for Chinese confidence men. He would dig up the men for the other Chinamen to rob, and the other fellows would divide the money with Leon, end quote. Though they offered no evidence of any of this. (laughs) (laughs) They just said it. The sport, or also called the sporting male, and the dandy were both known for their, quote, celebrations of self-indulgence and sexual promiscuity. The sport was prone to displays of physical prowess and was connected to working class subculture, especially in the Bowery. Mm-hmm. The dandy had more elite, refined aspirations, but both could freely move among the various social circles and neighborhoods seeking sexual conquest and adventure. I'm sure. In other words, Leon Ling's Americanness, his attitude and his good looks, allowed him a kind of form of social mobility that was not associated with other Chinese immigrants who were typically portrayed as sexually repulsive, ambiguously gendered, and hopelessly insular in their Chinese communities, right? Mm-hmm. Ling is like the opposite of all that. They were often described in opposite terms from the white working class. In written descriptions, they were described like looking like little girls, mm-hmm. uh, Chinese men and women alike, dressed in silk blouses and loose flowing pants, and their exclusion from industrial labor forced them into domestic and laundry services, jobs usually reserved for working-class white women. So for most white readers, Chinese men were thoroughly emasculated in their descriptions. So interracial relationships were seen as kind of universally caused by white women's dire economic circumstances, addiction, or to, quote, heathen brutality, end quote. Mm -hmm. These relationships were never due to Chinese, to a Chinese man's sexual desirability or masculinity. And honestly, this stereotype doesn't really begin to change in American culture until Bruce Lee. Yeah, I was just about to say. You know, I mean, he's Bruce Lee, yep. He's really like the first Chinese, you know, sort of Chinese American man who becomes a, a like a sex symbol. Is he even, he's the, not only that, he was, he was arguably the biggest movie star on the planet at one point. Yeah, arguably. Yeah, he and you know he's he was Chinese American. He, was, I thought he was just Chi- I thought he was Chinese, hundred percent Chinese. No, he is Chinese American. He was an American citizen, but he couldn't find work in the United States, so he uh, he was basically doing like kung fu movies in in. Uh, I can't remember if he was in. I guess he was doing movies in China. Then he got the Green Hornet. Yeah, there you go. Hey everybody, sorry, I got that backwards. Bruce Lee was in Green Hornet first, and then went to Hong Kong. 
Anyway, uh, this idea though, this, this, uh, elements of this idea of, of Chinese men or, and Asian men more broadly being excluded from a kind of, or not being considered for their sexual prowess or their masculinity continues to actually remain kind of a current, I think, in American sexual culture. Rarely do you see Asian American men described as like sex symbols in pop culture. It's pretty no, unusual. No, 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 never. Um, so, so again, this trope continues, you know, this stereotype, you know, continues even today. Anyway, this, uh, this era, the, the Siegel murder era, you know, this was the era of Teddy Roosevelt, who believed that a virile, superb masculine physique was essential for democratic citizenship and for proving white racial superiority, something Teddy was very interested in. Roosevelt makes an interesting test case for uh, a kind of emerging focus on the white male body at the time, because he was a famously sickly and weak boy who, at least according to his own narrative, through discipline and rigor, transformed himself into the strong physical specimen that he eventually became. Though, again, it's important to note no small part of that transformation was his access to untold wealth and the ability to shape his own narrative, regardless of how true it was. Honestly, he was kind of a fancy lad, and he just had the means and the opportunity to create a rugged uh, public persona. But nevertheless, you know, his transformation as the public understood it, and the example of strong men like Eugene Sandow, who is sort of today known as the, the father of bodybuilding. Oh, okay. These guys inspired others, people like Harry Houdini, who charted a different path to become a model of masculine virility. Yeah. I was like, I, I was like yeah, you could, that was the guy who, who said you could punch him in the stomach as hard as he could. And mm-hmm. He was Mr. Masculine, that guy, Houdini. Until it killed him. Yep. Um, if TR could transform himself into a model of virtuous manhood, couldn't Chinese men like Leon Ling? After all, Harry Houdini's transformation required more than merely developing a tolerance for pain, flexibility, lung capacity, you know, muscle density, all that stuff. He also had to transform out of his Jewishness. He had to shed his name, Erich Weiss, and constructed a new white masculine identity, Harry Houdini. Yeah. Right? Good, good call there. He couldn't be the Jewish Erich Weiss. Leon Ling also shed his Chinese name for the more American-sounding William Leon. He learned and perfected English, and he shed his ethnic clothing. With the discovery of love letters from Elsie Siegel and other white women, the press called him, quote, Chinese Don Juan, who seemed to have broken hearts with utmost facility, end quote. Mm, I knew it. So Leon Ling, or William Leon, was hardly the androgynous, sexually repulsive Chinaman. (laughs) William Leon was the Americanized Chinese man undeniably handsome, polished in manners and grace, irresistible to the opposite sex. Even though papers emphasized his work as a cook and a waiter, the overall perception was that of a a far more cosmopolitan charmer. He seemed to belong to a higher social class than a mere laborer. Perhaps these descriptions led George Anderson, a yardmaster for the West Shore Railroad, to report seeing, quote, a very good-looking Chinese man with the Chinese characteristic not very strongly stamped, this man was well-dressed, end quote. The police showed up, and it was not Ling. Police rounded up two Chinese men, dressed in American clothing from the back of a Chinese restaurant on 22 Center Street in Schenectady, accusing them of hiding Leon Ling. The man in hiding was just the cook taking a break from work. The detectives took the man into custody anyway and telegrammed the NYPD that they had captured Leon Ling. Elsie's brother, Reginald, 
rushed to Schenectady to identify his sister's murderer, but realized it was the wrong man immediately. In Utica, the newspaper applauded the quick work by the Schenectady PD, saying even though it was the wrong man, he did wear similar hairstyle and clothes and was, quote, a Christianized Mongolian, end quote, which justified the arrest as far as the Utica paper was concerned. The SPD had shown their zeal that Leon Ling would find no refuge in that town. Oh, boy. NYPD contacted the Washington, D.C. police after learning that the Siegel family received a telegram signed Elsie on June 12th, a few days after her disappearance on June 9th. The telegram said she would return home the following day. Police and reporters traced the telegram to the National Hotel at 6th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue. Hotel workers claimed to see Leon Ling and Elsie Siegel together at the hotel, some recalling, quote, a pretty girl was walking with Heinemann, and the man had a large bankroll and dressed like a millionaire, end quote. It isn't clear, actually, that witnesses actually saw the couple or just an interracial couple. Police in Washington and Baltimore conducted thorough searches among the small Chinese-American populations in those cities, but learned no new information. Right. In Boston, police searched Chinatown, but found no evidence that Ling had traveled there. Nevertheless, Boston PD began constant surveillance of the community. In nearby Worcester, police questioned several Chinese residents and arrested Ki Yin Hua from Manchester, New Hampshire, because he was a stranger in the area. Arrests in other cities followed. Lem Park, a New York resident, was arrested at Union Station in D.C. on June 24th when a policeman noticed, quote, a dapper little celestial wearing a blue suit and Panama hat, end quote. He was released once his D.C. friends testified that he wasn't Leon Ling. In New York's 8th precinct, precinct, C.J. Wong was arrested for being, quote, Americanized. Mm. Wong had spent 30 days serving time in a workhouse for vagrancy. He had been loitering because he was trying to hop a train to go west. Mm. So this poor guy serves 30 days in a workhouse because he wants to jump on a train and, and you know, head west. So he gets arrested for being a vagrant. So he does 30, 30 days hard labor. He gets out and somebody's like, and the a police officer looks at him and says, he looks Americanized and he gets arrested again. <laughs> in San Francisco, a large scale search began on June 23rd. Mm -hmm. Police stood watch at the Pacific mail docks where Manchuria, a ship, was scheduled to depart the following afternoon. The police placed a guard at every approach to the wharves and at each entrance to the steamship. By the time of departure, the extra surveillance had not turned up the suspect. So police expanded surveillance for every vessel that bound for Asia. Across the bay in Oakland, NYPD sent a tip that Ling was the head of a New York of the New York Hip Sing Tong. None of which is true, by the way. What is that? It's a, a Tong is like a fraternal organization. Okay. So the police sent a tip to Oakland that Leon Ling was the head of the New York Hip Sing Tong. Chief Peterson of the Oakland PD ordered a raid on the local Tong, which was not Hip Sing. <laughs> Peterson also investigated Ling's friends and relatives that lived in the area whatever that meant, because I'm not entirely sure right. that Ling had friends or relatives in the area. It's not completely clear, but there may have been people named Ling, which, <laughs> you know, wouldn't <laughs> be uncommon. Neither of these actions yielded any new information. On June 26th, the Oakland PD went to the city of Hayward to investigate a Chinese stranger who was dressed in American clothes and spoke English and he was spotted reading an American newspaper. <laughs> it was not Leon Ling. 
Police also searched nearby farms in case Ling tried to pretend he was a Korean or Japanese farm worker. Again, no luck. <laughs> On June 22nd, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, an Americanized Chinese man was seen boarding an electric car for Windber, nine miles away. Windber PD arrested Wee King Song, who had arrived from Altoona, Pennsylvania. In their excitement, the police not only announced that they had captured Leon Ling, but they also said they obtained a murder confession. <laughs> they, they quietly released the prisoner. Hold on. How is that possible? If the first one is impossible, how is the second one possible? So if they didn't actually... The police lie, Mike. <laughs> Man, you found a, uh, a really corrupt group. I mean, that's unbelievable. All over the country. I've had a corrupt group of every police department in the entire country. Right. I, I just happened to look at every single police every department. Every police. From big listen, cities. Listen, listen. From, from big cities. Hold on. From big cities to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, to Windber, Windber, Pennsylvania. Over I mean, the course the Windber, of the Windber PD. Of years. Let's be fair. Let's be fair. <laughs> <laughs> No, this is all happening like over the course of a couple of weeks but after the murder. Hundreds of years ago. Okay. Yes. Okay. Fine. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, that's the other thing too. You you have to imagine the Wimber PD is probably like six guys. You know, yeah, it's yeah. a small town. You know, it's a small and and you know they probably don't have a lot of Chinese immigrants going through town. So to have a, a Chinese immigrant who's like in Americanized clothes. They probably are just so damn excited. Right. They can't stand it. Yep. And I mean, again, so just I'm going to say this one more time that they <laughs> they announced that they had obtained a murder confession. Jumped the gun a little bit. They quietly released the prisoner after realizing their embarrassing error like a couple of days later. <laughs> In Jackson, Tennessee, police incorrectly believed they had arrested Leon Ling on June 27th in Chandler, Oklahoma. Police arrested a man they believed was Leon Ling, but he turned out to be someone who had come from St. Louis. NYPD authorities in New Orleans and Galveston to search their Chinese communities for the fugitive. In Gulfport, I'm sorry, and obviously it turned up nowhere. In Gulfport, Mississippi, a Chinese man was arrested on June 27th when he tried to board a train for New Orleans. He was imprisoned until his landlord could travel from Mobile, Alabama, all the way back to identify him. So again, that was in Gulfport, Mississippi. His landlord's in Mobile, Alabama, and like is the only guy that can prove that he's not Leon Ling. So this I mean, this is probably the only time ever in history that I will feel sorry for a landlord. Oh. But this poor landlord who has to travel back from Mobile, Alabama, just to be like, no, not it's not him. He's the guy he says he is. Like fucking assholes. You know? Oh my god. In fact, oh. Leon Ling's capture was reported all over the country. Even three months after the murder, the Dallas Police Department claimed to have captured Leon Ling incorrectly. So, again, I know that's like a laundry list of places, but that's the point. Is like, think <laughs> of all these lives that are just so disrupted oh, by this yeah. nonsense. You know, just by <laughs> absolute nonsense. Yep, yep. Okay. The, uh, the press, meanwhile, had mobilized civilians to look for the missing men. in Chicago. Jay Conley, an employee of the Parmley co Company, claimed to have spotted Ling and Chong Sing on their way to Vancouver, British Columbia. Door 11 became suspicious when a Chinese man spoke English and requested a room at her hotel on Canal Street. 
Sorry. Oh my! How so how dare she's you? A, she's a hotelier, <laughs> and a Chinese man came in and spoke English. Said, "I'd like to get a room for the night." She's like, <gasps> <laughs> uh, "Call the police!" And she does. She contacts the Chicago police, <laughs> who sent six detectives immediately to harass the wrong man. In Philadelphia, two customers and two employees remembered seeing Ling and Chong Sing on June 15th. May McDermott, who waited on the men, said she recognized Ling from his description as, quote, a good-looking Chinaman, well-dressed and intellectual-looking, end quote. Uh The restaurant owner said the man acted like a diplomat and was, quote, so well-dressed and put on such a front, end quote. I love, I love that. Like he, you know, he was just, he was so mad at this Chinese man. I guess probably, probably expecting to be treated like an equal. <laughs> Putting on a front, being well dressed. It's an act. It's, it's a bullshit. Obviously it's a murderer. Obviously. <laughs> Call the police. No Chinese man would dress properly, be nice, <laughs> act like a diplomat. I love it. <laughs> it was the same all over the country. Whenever an updated description of the suspects hit the papers, Leon Ling sightings increased. Every Chinese man in a community became scrutinized and surveilled to determine if, in fact, he was the killer. More important, the line between vigilantism and surveillance was often blurred. When Chicago police arrested George Moy for carrying a briefcase and wearing American clothes, and I want to read that again so you get the full impact of the words. When Chicago police arrested George Moy, for carrying a briefcase <laughs> and wearing American clothes. <laughs> that is why he was arrested. Mm-hmm. Look at that guy. He's in American clothes and he's got a briefcase. Get him. Moy and the arresting officer were soon surrounded by a mob that shouted and threatened all the way to the police station, threatening to, you know, lynch Moy. Sure. In Newark, New Jersey, three Chinese men were chased by a mob from an open air vaudeville show in Electric Park when a person shouted, Quote, Leon Ling, the murderer of Elsie Siegel is here, end quote. And so these three men had to run for their lives. <laughs> on July 6th in Patterson, New Jersey, a riot almost ensued when people thought they had captured Leon Ling. The man was named Wa Sing, and he was a laundry worker who went to visit his cousin. When he entered his cousin's laundry, the mob surrounded the location, and police had to fight their way through the mob just to discover that it was the wrong man. The New York Times reported, quote, the hallucination of seeing the mi- the missing Leon Ling continued all over the United States, with the result that many innocent Chinese, unfortunate enough to wear American dress, underwent embarrassing inquisitions without any new clue to the fugitive being obtained, end quote. So even the New York Times is like, this is probably not great. <laughs> like, this is, this is probably... You know, I know, I know we've contributed to a lot of this, but, uh, we're not going to take any blame, but this is probably not great. People, people should probably stop vilifying all Americanized Chinese men. Check out page three where we villainize, you know, several Americanized Chinese men. The hunt became international as well. On June 21st in Revelstoke, British Columbia, about 380 miles east of Vancouver. So a long ass way from Vancouver, 380 miles. Mm-hmm. Local police arrested a man riding a westward, a westbound train. The description should sound pretty familiar by now. Quote, the man talks good English, is well-dressed, 
and gives an unsatisfactory explanation of his business. End quote. There were even reports of Leon Ling's arrest in Ciudad Juarez, El Cajon, and Juarez in Mexico. The NYPD played an active role contacting police in other countries as well. After examining all New York steamships bound for China, they determined Ling could only be aboard one, the Minnesota, bound to dock in Yokohama, Japan on July 3rd. Japanese authorities boarded and searched every vessel from the United States and interrogated every Chinese passenger. The Minnesota turned out to have 53 Chinese aboard in steerage, along with two in first class and two in second class. Ling was not among any of them. But this incident is especially chilling when you think about the rising anti-Chinese sentiment in Japan, Mm -hmm. right? This is 1909. By 1931, right, just 12 years later, uh, or sorry, 22 years later, the Japanese invade Manchuria and eventually will engage in like one of the worst human atrocities ever committed mm-hmm. um, in China. You mean the, what they do, the, the rape of Nanjing is the most famous, but like w- the atrocities they commit in, Japan, in China are just, oof, I mean, bad. They, they, uh, they treat Chinese people as subhuman in every conceivable way. And so the thought, like, and that didn't happen out of nowhere. In 1909, much of that was already in place. There were those, those sentiments were already there. So I think about the, the rather terrifying experience for Chinese, for these Chinese people aboard those steamers getting searched and interrogated by Japanese police. It had to be just awful. You know, it just had to be awful. Acting on various leads, uh, the NYPD cabled various cities around the Mediterranean, the Suez Canal, and the Indian Ocean to conduct similar searches on vessels. In early July, Budapest police swept through the Chinese residential area area after an anonymous source claimed Leon Ling was hiding with a family there. No luck. About a week later, an American in London reported to Scotland Yard that he saw Ling outside of a jeweler's shop near the Royal Exchange. The American tried to convince a nearby policeman to make an arrest, but the policeman hesitated. Scotland Yard issued a bolo and sent Leon Ling's photograph to all police stations in London. London police searched the Chinese immigrant population, saying, quote, as the number of Chinamen in England is small compared to the number in America, it will be easier over here to examine all the Chinese residents and discover any strangers. They did not find Leon Lee. <laughs> it's like the he's like the, uh, the the original Whitey Bulger. Yeah, right. This guy. Unbelievable. NYPD broke all diplomatic protocols in their request for foreign assistance as well. They completely bypassed the U.S. State Department. And this led to several embarrassments. Most notably, NYPD sent a telegram to the superintendent of the police in Hong Kong. At first, the Hong Kong police believed the cable was a fake because it didn't come through proper channels and because it contained virtually no information about the actual murder. It was also a bit garbled in translation, leading the Hong Kong press to print that the NYPD was requesting the arrest and extradition of, quote, Lee On Tong, end quote, <laughs> which is great. U.S. ambassadors in Naples, Berlin, and London were all approached by local authorities inquiring about extradition before the ambassadors even knew what was going on. <laughs> so, like, NYPD in their zeal is just, like, contacting police departments and bypassing all the diplomatic channels, which is <laughs> not good. Right. Right. Nevertheless, internationally, just like nationally, NYPD's calls for assistance did not produce Leon Ling. They merely reinforced racial and national boundaries by singling out Chinese people for increased scrutiny and suspicion. Part of the problem was that many whites perceived Chinese as homogenous, 
like interchangeable. Mm-hmm. The mass false arrests suggest this as well. People were unable to recognize ethnic differences between Chinese and other groups. For example, when NYPD followed a rumor that Leon Ling had taken a trunk to Newark, New Jersey to dispose of it at a chop suey restaurant on Market Street, police tracked down Lee Singh, the restaurant owner, and James Halstead, the cab driver. Singh insisted he refused the trunk and that Ling had hired Halstead to take the trunk back to 8th Avenue. When questioned, Halstead looked at a photograph of Leon Ling and hesitated to identify him. He said, well, it does look like him, but then I'm not much at identifying Chinamen. They all look alike to me, more or less. And <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Halstead helpfully, and I love this part, Halstead helpfully told the officers he could definitely identify the trunk. Quote, I would know that trunk the moment I saw it. End quote. <laughs> Which is just, wow. <laughs> just a, a remarkable thing to say out loud. Like, just, well, I, I can't tell the guy, but right. I could recognize that trunk anywhere. Right. Like, that is bananas. Okay. Of course, this applied to many Asians in America. A large number of Japanese Americans were arrested on the false belief that they were the Chinese fugitives. Police in D.C. raided a house and made arrests when they believed Leon Ling and Chong Sing were hiding there with a white woman. Several days later, the men were all released because they were Japanese. Now, so they were arrested and had to stay in jail for several days until they could prove they were Japanese. (laughs) In New Jersey, police arrested several Japanese domestic servants on their way to meet their employers. One of the servants worked for the governor. (laughs) <laughs> on, on June 24th in Birmingham, Alabama, Deputy Ed Wilson rushed to a restaurant to arrest Leon Ling, only to find the man in question was the Japanese cook. Oh, jeez. In New York, many of the city's 1,000 Japanese residents were harassed or arrested, including Ken Kichi, a clerk. On June 25th, policeman Higgins of the West 125th Street Station arrested Ken Kichi at 573 8th Avenue because he thought he looked like Ling. Mm-hmm. He needed additional police assistance because a crowd gathered and was threatening to kill the arrested man. Once at the police station, Ken was able to quickly and easily prove he was Japanese. So I think about that. Like, imagine if this poor guy had gotten killed by this mob because this cop was like, Japanese, Chinese, all the same to me. Mm-hmm. But this, this one that I'm about to tell you is mwah, chef's kiss. This is the best of the best. Well, there's one other that might be bad. The next one might be better, but this one's pretty dang on good. On June 29th in New Orleans, police arrested Lieutenant Colonel J. Alexander Passos of the Nicaraguan Army. Passos was traveling to New Orleans for an operation. He was described as, quote, a rather handsome young man with a smooth face and swarthy skin with jet black hair and eyes and dresses very neatly, end quote. His distinctive look and accent caught the attention of the conductor, who thought Passos was Ling. The conductor asked John Dooling, a special officer for the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, to take a closer look. Dooling didn't act on the train, but as soon as they got to the station, he alerted the, the, the New Orleans Police Department, quote, still satisfied that the man was a Chinaman, end quote. New Orleans Police Department defected, detectives acted quickly, and despite Passos's very agitated protests, they arrested the lieutenant colonel, and once at the station, Passos had no difficulty identifying himself because he's a Nicaraguan diplomat. <laughs> he was released with many apologies, but Passos was furious and continuously threatened to report the incident to the Nicaraguan minister in Washington, D.C., causing an international, you know, like an international stir. But he ultimately decided not to. 
dude is Nicaraguan. <laughs> and they're like, looks Chinese enough to me. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I could see J- Japanese I'll fall for, Korean, um, you know, uh, Vietnamese, but, uh, you know, I did that. That's stretching it right there. Oh, now, if you think that's a stretch, stay awake <laughs> for me for this one. Okay, okay. Racial lines were and frankly are blurry. In 1909, the same year as Siegel's murder, Congress was debating whether Syrians should be continue to be considered white or whether they were Asiatic and therefore ineligible for citizenship. Massachusetts decided to move Armenians from the Asiatic category to white in the state, meaning they could become citizens. The idea that a Latino could be confused as Chinese really is pretty surprising, but maybe it shouldn't be. <laughs> However, maybe we should be really shocked to learn that in mid-July, John W. Basil traveled from St. Louis to Shipman, Illinois. When he arrived in Shipman, a constable arrested him as he had departed the train, believing him, quote, to resemble an Oriental, end quote. <laughs> Shipman police telegraphed the NYPD, claiming they caught the fugitive, Leon Lang. It was only after an invasive and intensive physical examination that police decided that John W. Basil was, in fact, a white man. <laughs> On July 16th, Shipman's mayor had to publicly and rather sheepishly admit that they were not holding the elusive Ling as they had claimed. Oh, my God. Arresting a white man that they think is Chinese. <laughs> and I just want to point out, because I'd love to know what this means, that they only believed that John Basil was white after. Uh, yes, intense. <laughs> an invasive and intensive physical examination. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would love to know. Exactly. How they think. They were like, no, this man's ass is way too white <laughs> to be, to be like, no, no self-respecting person. Out, like only a white man could have an ass this white. That's the only thing I can exactly. imagine. Like, an invasive and intensive physical examination. They were like, oh, crap, he's a white man. <laughs> but but again, they had already telegraphed the NYPD saying, we got him. I uh, think this was a thing. Everyone so was big. so anxious to get this guy. They just wanted credit. They wanted to be the first Absolute, no. guys. Absolutely. But it's, but it's bananas. That they're all uh, like, it is, you know, it is. we, we've got our guy. Arresting anyone oh, anything. Turns out, oh, we got him. We got, we got him. Turn, turns out he's from Nicaragua. Oopsie. <laughs> Leon Ling's ability to elude law enforcement, even with the extraordinary scrutiny of police and citizens alike, should be seen as him subverting the nation's racial ideologies. Like, uh, this is especially true of the assumptions about Chinese being clannish and isolated. Obviously, he assimilated so well that he could disappear. He blended in well enough to vanish when the whole world was searching for him and searching for anyone who looked even remotely like him, like Nicaraguan lieutenant colonels, apparently, and white guys um, who, I guess, looked Asian-ish. The idea that Leon Ling or any Chinese man, no matter how Americanized, could simply vanish into the general population seemed unbelievable to most sort of bougie people. Such a feat would have rivaled Harry Houdini's most death-defying escapes. About a year after Elsie Siegel's body was discovered in Midtown, the New York Times published one last imagined Leon Ling sighting in an effort to provide a conclusion for the whole sordid tale. They claimed, without any evidence, 
that Leon Ling escaped to Canada immediately after Siegel's murder. And then from Canada, he was secretly smuggled to China, where he'd been working on a farm ever since. Now, Mike, I could end our story there. Wrap it up in a neat little unsolved bow with the New York Times proving that they've always been an outstanding journalistic establishment. (laughs) With them trying to put Leon Ling in their rearview mirror, so to speak, and just sort of move on. Or I could tell you uh, how Chinese communities around the country were probably the most active in trying to find Leon Ling because they suffered the most for his alleged Mm -hmm. crime. Mm -hmm. I could talk about how much this story looks a lot like how Muslim communities were treated by police and citizens alike after 9-11. I could do any of those things. But instead, I'm going to share one more intriguing part of the story and then do a little wrap-up. Oh, wonderful. Are you ready? I am. All right. So do you remember way back in the beginning of all this when I said that Elsie Siegel had written love letters to another man? I do. His name was Chu Gain. Police had learned that Elsie frequented the well-known Port Arthur restaurant that Chu Gain managed. Then the police found the love letters. They were written by Siegel and, quote, filled with terms of endearment, end quote, which convinced the police that he played some role in her death. Police and newspapers, trying to establish a motive, argued that Leon Ling became enraged and jealous when he learned about Chu Gain. The world argued that Siegel fanned the flames of passion with both men until Leon Ling discovered her deceit. Of course, they did this with no evidence. Mm-hmm. The article written in the world, cites letters she had written to both men just before her disappearance. Given what we know about the press, we should treat all of these maybe with some suspicion because uh, we know they're going to be lacking context. We mm-hmm. just know from the way this story has played out uh, and from also uh, having eyes and ears and knowing who the press are. The paper claimed they were, quote, couched in endearing terms. But while Leon is assured of her love, Chu is told in a way that he could not misunderstand that he held the chief place in her affection, end quote. She wrote to Chu Gain on June 8th, the day before she disappeared. In that letter, she dismissed a visit that she had had from Leon as a mere social obligation. And she told Chu, quote, I love you and you only and always, end quote. In fact, When Chu Gain learned of her disappearance, he took out a notice in the New York Herald to convince her to come home. It simply read, quote, EJS dash, mother very ill, come home, dear one, end quote. But soon enough, Chu Gain found himself trying to defend his and Siegel's reputations as the press made numerous allegations about their relationship and how decent it was or wasn't. Chugain now was held in custody, you know, arrested, held in custody, and interrogated for several days. Mm-hmm. He remained cooperative throughout and promised not to run away if released. Now, his socioeconomic status also impressed his interrogators, as he was financially quite well off. His bail was lowered from $1,000 to $100 when they realized that he had a lot of money, which is actually pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, it's like, oh, you're rich? Well, then there's no reason to charge you this much money. We'll charge you less. (laughs) Though uh, he was released, he very quickly discovered that his every move was being monitored. Mm -hmm. Tired of the constant surveillance, Chu Gain tried to take a ferry to Atlantic City so he could be part of the Boardwalk Empire. No, um, (laughs) he tried to take a ferry to Atlantic City, but he was prevented by police. Steve Bashimi said, no, you can't come. Right, right. He offered to give a $1,000 bond to ensure that he would return to New York. But the offer was rejected by the district attorney, 
So he just endured the scrutiny and constant surveillance until eventually police just stopped surveilling him. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how his story basically ends. Like he just kind of tolerated it for a long time. And eventually the police were like, well, this guy doesn't seem to be doing anything that's leading us to Elsie Siegel, telling us anything about the murder. And he seems to generally be like Mm -hmm. innocent in all this. Yep. Again, whether he was or not, we have no idea. He just basically, you know, Oh, I figured just, it out. I've solved it. So when you're ready for the, uh, when you're ready for it, just I know you know. did. Okay. There was another fugitive you might recall. Okay. And, uh, I don't know if you remember the roommate, the guy on the other side of the room. Yes. yes. Leon Ling's roommate, yes. Chong Singh. Okay. On June 21st, 1909, just three days after Elsie Siegel's body was discovered, the Amsterdam, New York, Amsterdam Evening Recorder and Daily Democrat newspaper announced major news about Chong Singh. Mm-hmm. The Amsterdam, New York police arrested Chong Singh, right? Again, Ling's roommate who had seemingly disappeared with him. Mm-hmm. And they called the arrest, quote, one of the most notable in the history of the local police department for solving the mystery connected with the crime, which has horrified the entire country. And, mm-hmm. and I have to say that that sentence is doing a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. This arrest is one of the most notable in the history of the local police department for solving the mystery connected with the crime, which has horrified the entire was, country. I just, love it. It's just like, they went right to their marketing department and said, how do we get the name of our police department out there? And how do we how do we uh, build us up as as this, this great force that solved the world's most heinous crime? Right. Without without aiming more than we legally can (laughs) so it's you know they solve the mystery connected with the crime right like not the mystery of the crime So they arrested this guy chong singh now did they did they torture him did they did they did they get any ah here we go this is this is kind of wild actually so i want you i really this is a i want you to imagine this situation and how absolutely Mm -hmm. bananas this is all right because this is this is okay. legitimately bananas. Okay. The paper proudly boasted about local cops. I mean, they did a little boosterism, what you would expect, and how the Amsterdam PD did what the mighty New York Police Department Couldn't and the do. rest of the country's police had failed to do. Sure. The paper was proud, to say the least. What's funny is, it wasn't as if they did any sort of crazy police work or figured out some secret code or whatever. They just learned that a Chinese man had moved from New York City to take a job as a cook at Harvey Kennedy's summer home. Mm-hmm. Then they went to Harvey Kennedy's house and Chong Singh said, yeah, I'm Chong Singh. And they were like, well, you're under arrest. He said, okay. And that was that. No muss, no fuss, like easy peasy. Okay. Right? So <laughs> I love that. The, I'm sorry. The, uh, the disparate relationship between the paper acting like this is the greatest arrest in the history of police. And the fact that all, they were like, oh, there's a guy who took a job as a cook at this house. Well, let's go to the house. And the guy's like, yeah, that's me. Okay, I'll come along. That's it. Now, what did they charge him with? Did they charge him with murder? Well, here's the, the he was arrested on suspicion, on suspicion of, right. Okay. And the NYPD had put out a, a kind of a bolo, you know, for this guy because he disappeared. So he was wanted in connection. Sure. So he's arrested now. Right. I got you. They're just holding him then. They're not really charging him they're holding him well the amsterdam police correct yes to return to him new to york city. new york yes so we're, we're getting to okay. that okay we gotcha. haven't gotten to the bananas part this is the bananas part 
Right. Okay. Now, okay. news of Chong Sing's arrest spread around town like wildfire. Of, of course it did. And residents began to flock to the police station, hoping to catch a glimpse of the man who killed Elsie Siegel, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the police put Chong Sing on display for the public. <laughs> Quote, that's, this, is what, this is the bananas part. Police were like, oh, look at all these people who want to see this guy. Well, let's give the people what they want. So, quote, oh, no. Chung Sing was sat in a chair in the chief's private office, and the crowd was allowed to file in past him, <laughs> going in one door and out the other. So, you know, there's a line of people. No one was allowed to linger, but everyone was given an opportunity to view the much-wanted celestial. This is all a quote. And I'm sure he was sitting there shackled, too. Yeah, maybe. His hands were free. I know that. And I'll tell you why I know that. Or, okay. Okay. He was giving everyone the finger. He was just getting on the fingers. No. On fire. <laughs> Should have been. But I love that they call, uh-huh. I mean, this, this idea of calling him a celestial. Is it, isn't that from, isn't that something from outer space? Yes. Yes. Uh, but it was also a term, <laughs> celestial, like of the stars. I don't know if I'd call it a slur. I've never heard that. Is it kind of like alien today? Like illegal alien? Like the word alien is kind of like, kind of for foreigners, like maybe back then? Yeah. It honestly, I, I'm not entirely sure. I, I really should have maybe looked up the the roots of this. Uh, calling him a celestial makes him seem very like a mystic or seem something, you know, um, exotic. I got you. Okay, so here, let me let me get back to this because I'm interested. Okay, I, I haven't gotten to the point of this. Singh was arrested. He's on display, sat in a chair. People walking through. But did they interrogate him? Can I? I will get to that in a minute. Okay. Okay, I'm getting I'm very there. interested to find out what this guy says. I know you are. I, I got to know his side of the story uh, here. I'm getting in there. my mind. I've got this thing. I've got this thing almost solved. I just need his piece. Well, I mean, okay. I told you from the beginning. Solving this, solving this murder mystery is not really the goal. You told me there's no. You told me that's not going to be solved, but I've solved it. So, well, uh, maybe we have solved something that wasn't solved by these police. Back in you know whatever, well it wasn't solved because you don't get the no. you don't get to arrest the guy and send him to jail so we know who the most likely well person was. solved not prosecuted I'm saying solved like you know how everything went down and who did what but you can't obviously prosecute because everyone's dead kind of like the Tupac you, thing like everyone knows what happened to Tupac but you can't really prosecute anyone because they're all dead uh, okay sure sure some so it's solved. But yeah, possible. I mean, except that. Uh, except that again, we know what we know, but we don't know enough to. We don't like. We don't have. It doesn't We'll get to it. Okay. So no one was allowed to linger, and everyone was given the opportunity to view the much wanted celestial. Not only men, but hundreds of women were included in the throng, and it is estimated that during that day, while the Chinaman was kept at headquarters, several thousand pairs of eyes looked curiously at him. End quote. So that's the bananas part to me is you've got this guy you've arrested and you just like lock him up in the chief's office and then you let all, like over a thousand people come through to look just to look at him. Right. That is it's insane. I mean, it's, it's the most insane thing for a police department to do. It's nuts. I don't know what the judicial system was like back then, but I would assume like having a fair and partial jury. We still had that system then, correct? Or no? Am I incorrect with that? We didn't have we didn't have impartial juries. No, no but, but I mean, we were supposed the, to. Right, we had the jury system. Well, the jury system comes from Vikings, actually. And how can you have a jury system? And as anyone in law enforcement, you know, create thousands of people to see a guy cuffed to a to a table or, or whatever. Sure, sure. <laughs> right. Like, like I mean, you're tainting everyone right. in the whole area. Like no one's gonna. Right. This guy doesn't stand a chance in hell. 
if he wants to fight this one. That's that is that is what makes it so insane. Because again, this is not um he's a public figure in the sense that everybody's looking for him, but he's not a public figure. It's not like when Harvey Weinstein gets arrested and he's a public figure. So there's a public interest sure. in that story being publicized. Sure. I mean, I think about today, I, I'm always kind of offended. Like in Florida, we've had these magazines where they're basically they exist online and, and in person. They're just mugshots. Like they're just magazines of everybody's mugshot. Oh, and yeah. it's like, in yeah. fact, no, they, you can get all the Florida mugshots. Sure. Um, part of the open records law. And it's one of the reasons that the Florida man stereotype has proliferated because a lot of states do not allow you to look at mugshots um, because you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty and nothing makes you look guilty like a mugshot. Sure. You know what I mean? When you're lined sure. up and you've got the card in yeah. front of you and you've got the, the height indicator, like all of that stuff is we are all conditioned through a million cop shows and movies to like, that is a perp walk. And like that, is, you know, we, we see that and we see guilt in theory, they're supposed to be innocent, innocent until proven sure. guilty in, in a court of law. And so in Florida, though, the open records law allows for all the mugshots to be viewed, which is why we, we like fl the Florida man stereotype exists because you can search through the database of all these like crazy arrests and you can find mugshots of people that look absolutely, you know, meth out of their <laughs> mind because in, in many, like, cause you, because you're catching people in their worst possible human moments and you're getting a picture of them where they look ridiculous. Sure. Like any of us, any of us who, you know, I mean, if, if you or I or anybody else went out and did, uh, you know, had like a, a fun night out on Coke and <laughs> had a real bender, you know, and like had day. the, had the unfortunate, well, and, and unfortunately did something dumb, you know, like, I don't know, went, uh, went swimming in a public fountain or something and got arrested. And so, you know, you'd have your mugshot, like all coked out, you know, you're, you're grinding your teeth in the picture and yeah you know what i mean and like you're all wet you know you've just been in this stuff and like but like you're like a perfectly normal person who is like having was having a good time with some friends and got a little stupid right. for a minute and when and and when it comes to court or whatever and may, or maybe you're a pro person with a problem and you need you need some help or maybe you just got caught doing a dumb thing and you get to court and this is probably resolved pretty easily because you know you're like look you know like i'm a productive member of society yeah, I did. I did a little coke on Saturday. I got a little out of control and I'm going to go to rehab or I'm going to do the thing. And, you know, you're going to get probation or something like that. If you have uh, if you have the resources available to you to hire a lawyer, you'll get probation. If you don't, you'll probably do 30 days or something. I, I don't know. It depends. Whatever. Point being, any of us at our worst human moments would look just like those guys that end up being like the poster boys for Florida, man. Yeah. You know, uh, memes. I, I always feel really sympathetic to them because I'm like, okay, yeah, they are objectively funny when you don't stop and think about it. But like most of the time you're like, I mean, I've seen some of them where it's like a woman gets arrested for, uh, she's like shade, like shaving in a public pool and you're like shaving her legs in a public pool. And then like you read the story a little bit and you're like, oh, she's homeless. So it's like, well, where the fuck else was she supposed to shave her legs? Like, you know what I mean? What are her choices? It's not like we provide public mm -hmm. restrooms with showers that people can use. So like she found a way she got, six bucks so she could get into the public pool get a little recreation she's using it to clean her body to try and do a little hygiene <laughs> and you know yeah maybe should she be shaving her legs in the pool no probably not but also yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean you i know, mean look it's you like gotta you do what you gotta context, do i get it i get it you know it's a more sympathetic story sure, when you have the context, sure. there's, all I'm saying. there's a way there's a way to tell the story where it's sympathetic and then there's a way where you can put her cracked out mugshot 
with a with a uh, with a, a blurb that says Florida woman shaving her leg like arrested while shaving her legs in public, I, and you're like, oh my god, what a crazy lady! What's going yeah, on in Florida? I get it. Well, you know, it's like you know, man wrestles alligator, and they leave out the part that like the alligator was on his back porch, and he's got kids, <laughs> and he's like trying to get it out of his yard, and you know, did listen, did the thing listen, that he listen. thought. Well, like, there's enough stories coming out of Florida and the people that live between the Orlando and the Panhandle area. Like everywhere in between there in Jacksonville, like if you want to draw Tallahassee to sure. to Jacksonville, sure, the triangle, the magic, the magic triangle. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the swamp. It's that's it's, where I yeah, live. I know. It's <laughs> <laughs> my it's so, my magic triangle. Uh, so yeah, that's there's a lot of stories coming out of that magic triangle. Sure. Uh, yeah. And some of them are like you said, some of them are true. Like you said, there's a lot of context there. You can sure. easily poke fun of the guy that's wrestling the alligator. But then there's a also a whole whole bunch of stories sure. that you really can't. <laughs> but I mean, again, I, I get my my objection to the whole thing is just that I'm not sure that Florida is uniquely crazy, but the stories are more publicly available. And so it's really sure. easy for there to be a Florida man meme because, yeah. number one, there's like 20 million people that live in the state. So you've got a, a lot to pick from. You know what I mean? Like just because we are a big state, there's a lot of people. You could probably just as easily find California man and Texas man, but our open records laws make our stories and mugshots easier to find. So it's much easier to connect all those things. Nice. Well, listen, can we get back to the sing interrogation finally? I mean, I'm waiting. What do you want, man? So the last thing I said, lots, hundreds of women mm-hmm. were included in this throng of people that went to look at him. Of course. Now, the stories about Leon Ling's good looks and his newspaper-created persona as the Chinese Don Juan mm-hmm. had influenced many townspeople, particularly women, who came to see Chong Sing, hoping to see the handsome man. Now, understand, just like today, you know, lots of people are reading these stories about Chong Sing and Leon Ling, and they're seeing pictures or whatever else, and they hear that one of the guys involved in the Elsie Siegel murders arrested. I'm sure a lot of them showed up thinking, Oh, this has got to be the handsome one. Right. You know what I mean? Without necessarily, you know, not, not everybody's going to go back to their old newspaper to see like, Oh, which one was the handsome one? And what's this Chong Singh look like? Does he look like he's gotten beaten by the ugly stick or something? I mean, he's, he is fine. Okay. Um, he, like Leon Ling is the very, is, is very handsome. He's Just... objectively, Leon Ling is an objectively good looking guy. Chong Singh looks like a regular dude. Gotcha. So, so that's what disappointing to. to see. Yes, I hear you. Ah, this is great. So all of these women came to see Chong Singh, hoping to see the handsome man. Mm-hmm. People were quickly disappointed mm-hmm. by Chong Singh, who apparently was no Don Juan, Chinese or otherwise. <laughs> Female onlookers were heard quoted as saying, quote, well, who could care for him? And ain't he an awful looking thing? End quote. <laughs> His part, this poor, this poor son of a bitch sitting there as people were walking through going, why ain't he ugly? That's juror, that's juror number five. Look at this ugly son of a bitch. You know, I mean, but like, I mean, this poor guy's just sitting there and they're just like, well, that's, that's one ugly motherfucker right there. This guy couldn't get a lady. Maybe he didn't pay her. He must be guilty. <laughs> so for his part, he tried to ignore them. He didn't like talk back. He just sat there quietly smoking cigars. Mm-hmm. Did he have representation? Or is that say of, again? Did he have any representation here? No, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> silly, silly, silly. silly. Um, we had not yet decided that you were entitled to have. Such okay, a, um, especially if you were a Chinese immigrant, <laughs> you were still. It was, it was still evolving. Our, our system was still evolving. I got you. Uh, okay, Singh was interviewed by the Amsterdam Press, and he offered a few details about his life. He was thirty-five years old. 
He was married, but his wife was in China. He'd been in the United States about 10 years, and he worked as a cook. He downplayed any relationship that he had with Leon Ling, explaining that, like many other laborers, he mostly slept at work rather than making the trip all the way back to his apartment. So he and Leon saw each other about once every two weeks. He did say that Elsie and Leon were close. The Amsterdam police chief refused to allow Singh to contact his family to let them know of his arrest. The next day, the New York police uh, took him back to the city and the coroner set his bail at $10,000, which is a lot of $1,909. Sure. Chong Singh was taken to the House of Correction and interrogated nonstop for 30 straight hours. Wow. Until he finally broke down and confessed to seeing Leon Ling murder Elsie Siegel on the afternoon of June 9th, the last day her family saw her alive. He swore that he did not take part in the murder, but his interrogators pressed on. To explain how he knew Leon Ling was the murderer, he claimed that he saw the events by looking through the keyhole and what he could see through the transom above the door. A transom is like a, a window plate over top yep, of the door. Yep. So after he told them this, police went back to the murder scene and they found there was no transom above the door. Uh-oh. And they looked through the keyhole and realized he couldn't have seen any of the things he described. Questioned him again. This time, he said he was sleeping and Leon Ling woke him up demanding assistance, cramming the already dead seagull into the trunk. Police did not believe him. So they brought in a specialist, a man named Quan Yik Nam a member of the Americanized Chinese community who was very anxious to help the police because he's one of these guys who is suffering the consequences of this. And he sure. sees his his community, the the, sure. the assimilated Chinese community yes. being harassed. So he really wants to help. And he had been brought in before to help other Chinese uh, who had been arrested to try and like help get confessions and things like that. He's mm-hmm. a translator, mm-hmm. but he's also like a sort of a pillar in the community. Uh, nonetheless, even after Kwan Yik Nam talked to him uh, for a long time, for hours, Singh maintained that he did not help Ling kill Siegel. That he had nothing to do with okay. it. So first off, they interrogated this man for 30 straight hours. Yes. Okay. That is um, unconstitutional. <laughs> okay. Correct. Um, because after 30 straight hours of interrogation, anybody would tell you anything. Of course. You know, you torture a dude for 30 hours. Yes. And like, because when I say, I mean, when we talk interrogation, let's remember that it's 1909. Sure. I mean, even today, 30 hours of interrogation is wildly out of out of bounds. I, I think I got this. So the, keep going. But I think I have this. I, I figured this out. OK. On June 25th, Singh had claimed that he overheard an argument between Elsie Siegel and Leon Ling. And after he made that claim, the police took him back to the scene of the crime to jog his memory, thinking because like he's remembering more a few days later, you know, whatever. Yeah. After several more days of intense questioning, yep. the police and the press were frustrated by Singh's ever-changing story. I mean, the guy just keeps telling him different bits of information, like he keeps like contradicting himself. As one reporter noted, quote, Chong has contradicted himself so often and told so many versions of his movements the morning of June 9th that the police have been able to credit only such bits of information as conform to known facts in the case, end quote. In other words, Chong Singh added no new information. He only told the police over and over and over different bits of what had already been published in newspapers, which should suggest at this point that dude doesn't know anything, right? He's giving these like trying to make the torture stop by telling them things. And those things are all things that have appeared in the press. Sure. So what he knows is whatever he's read in the press. And like he might be elaborating by saying, oh, yeah, yeah, no, he he asked me to help him stuff the lady in the trunk or, you know, well, I was asleep and like I, I heard the fight and I. I was able to see some things through the keyhole. Like he really doesn't seem to know anything. So let me clarify this. He's making he's he's given different contradicting statements correct. during torture, correct? Interrogation. Or <laughs> you know, is the press saying 
Well, yeah. He's not giving any statements to the press at all. Right, but the press know because they're constantly asking because this is a big deal. Like they caught this guy. So the press are just hounding the police. So the police are leaking. Correct. They're leaking. The police are leaking this out. Correct. I got you. So now they took him to the to the uh, to the crime scene. So not torturing him presently on June 25th because they're actually taking him to the crime scene. Right. Correct. All right. Got it. So again, he he's adding no in, new information. He's only telling the police what's already been published. Sure. So like and again, like that's not unusual. We hear about this all the time where yep. somebody tells it's, exactly it's, what's been published in the press, but they but like if you're actually involved, you usually accidentally let slip some detail that wasn't published because you think it's part of the story because you know it's part right. of the story. And so like that's or at least that's how it right. works on TV. Who knows how it works in real life? But like that there's a logic yes. to that. So on top of that, on top of the fact that he's adding no new information, Chinese immigrants were already sort of not trusted as witnesses anyway. The district attorney, Nathan Smith, or Smythe, noted, quote, our experiences with Chinese witnesses has been that they are entirely unreliable, and we find that juries are unwilling to believe their testimony except when corroborated by very strong evidence, end quote, or more reliable testimony. Somebody else says the thing, and the Chinese yeah. witness says the same thing, no. then juries believe them. So, I mean, what he's saying here, what Smith is saying here, I mean, he's saying that all the Chinese are unreliable, but what he's really saying is that he doesn't trust the Chinese. White people don't trust the Chinese. So anything that they tell the police is only useful if it's corroborated by other people right from the get-go. Like, Chung Sing's testimony alone wouldn't be enough anyway right. to get a conviction because Correct. people won't trust him. Okay. The other problem with Chong Sing's story was that both the press and the reading public started to question the coercive tactics used by police. William Smith, who's just a citizen, wrote a letter in to the New York Times expressing his indignation over the tactics used by police and their treatment of this prisoner. Smith argued that extracting a declaration of guilt after putting a prisoner through the third degree <laughs> was unacceptable as a confession. Smith went on, quote, it is a disgrace to our police and to our civilization and this cruel harrying of, a, of an alien of low intelligence and morals is worthless for results. End quote. <laughs> so like, again, you always got to get a little racist. Um, he's like, man, this is terrible. We should not be torturing this guy. Like if you're tortured, you'll say anything. This is useless. And also, boy, this really like speaks bad about us white people who are the smartest and best at everything. No. You know, I mean, it's just like, okay. So obviously racist uh, Smith's views though, also point to another reality in America in that day coming to terms with torture. Here's a thing that you don't usually learn about in your history books. You see, in 1902, just seven years before all this, the American public learned for the first time that American soldiers had been practicing something called the water cure <laughs> in, the in the war in the Philippines. Here we go. The water cure was basically waterboarding. And so we were using that in 1902 to torture Philippine independence fighters. Now, I don't know what you know about the Philippine-American War, but when we went into the Spanish-American War, we said we were doing it because we wanted to free the poor people of Cuba and the Philippines and Guam and Puerto Rico from the yoke of Spanish imperialism. Those poor people were being tortured by the Spanish, and we were going to set them free. And when it came to the Philippines, the Philippines had a large independence movement. They had actually written a declaration of independence that they modeled on our Declaration of Independence, trying to claim their independence from Spain. Aguinaldo was the, the leader of the, the Philippine resistance. And when the United States first got involved 
fighting the Spanish in the Philippines, the Philippine independent movement, independence movement, sided with and fought alongside the United States. When the Spanish were defeated, the Filipinos were expecting independence, as you might, since that's what you were fighting for all along. When it became clear that the United States was going to keep the Philippines, we were going to keep the Philippines as a colony, they fought against us as, again, as might be expected. Mm -hmm. We decided to employ the tactic of torture, waterboarding, or the water cure. Mm -hmm. This made front page news in Time magazine and was like a real, I mean, it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. It was a huge expose. And when the war changed and we were really fighting the Filipinos, as opposed to uh, the Spanish in the Philippines, the press treated it like they just don't understand freedom. We have to, we have to defeat them so that we can give them proper freedom and democracy because they're too stupid to do it themselves. So we've got to, we've got to kill a bunch of them. So then they can be, so the ones that are left are smart enough to understand we're trying to help them by making them a colony for the next hundred years or whatever. Anyway, the water cure thing though was very embarrassing because we had long criticized European powers for their use of torture on their colonies. So to find out that we were also torturing prisoners of war uh, was a bit of a black eye. And it was roundly condemned. I mean, roundly condemned internationally. Um, I mean, and you could sort of make a point that when the, the British or the French or the Belgians are, are criticizing the United States for using torture, it's pretty freaking hypocritical. <laughs> but we were still tortured internationally. I mean, we were tortured by, I mean, uh, we were uh, criticized by countries around the world. Uh, and, and rightly so. So in the United States, though, um, these, these sort of revelations about American torture generated a real uh, kind of rousing discourse at home about the merits and pitfalls of, of torture, right? Of the water. Mark Twain wrote about it saying, quote, to make them confess what truth or lies. How can one know which it is they're telling for under an unendurable pain, a man confesses anything that is required of him, true or false. And his evidence is worthless. End quote. There was also this sort of racist assumption that the Chinese were better able to handle physical pain than white people. Thomas Millard wrote that while he didn't believe the Chinese were, quote, more indifferent to physical pain and to death than Westerners are, the stoicism of the Oriental is undoubtedly one of the greatest obstacles between the New York police and the solution to the Siegel mystery, end quote. So in other words, he's like, the problem here is that Chinese people can handle, even though they feel the pain the same as Westerners do, because they're so stoic, somehow they're able to withstand the torture that is being uh, that is being brought upon them and not confess any real truth because they're because of their their Orientalism or whatever. They're able to take the beating and say, thank you, sir. May I have another and never break. So, I mean, again, pretty, pretty racist ideas uh, that, that, again, are in the press. And, and I think you can't disentangle the way people respond to sort of finding out about that the NYPD is essentially beating, trying to beat a confession out of this guy. Yes. The treatment of Chongqing was certainly torturous. No lawyer would ever allow 30 straight hours of questioning, let alone like he goes through this for, for weeks, right? A person would confess anything to end it. And so we can probably make a little bit of sense out of Chongqing's constantly changing story by the fact that like he will say whatever he thinks they want to hear. But one thing he never says is that he was involved. Like, he never admits to being involved in the murder. He wasn't. On September 9th, after nearly three months in detention and amid constant intense questioning for three months, Singh has a lawyer who (laughs) asks for a a reduction of bail from $10,000 to $1,000. 
The district attorney requested that the bail remain the same, but Judge Malone actually reduced the bail to $500. Oh, good for him. Less than what Singh's lawyer had requested at a thousand. Mm-hmm. Singh was able to quickly post it and he returned to his cousin's home in Chinatown. The DA office refused to accept Singh's claims of innocence and they immediately filed for a warrant charging him with first degree murder. Okay. However, the warrant was never served because on September 24th, the coroner's office officially charged Leon Ling alone with Elsie Siegel's murder. So because the coroner charged Leon Ling, you couldn't bring a charge of murder against Chong Singh any longer. All right. So the charges are dropped. Singh's charges get dropped. Singh's charges are dropped. Due to technicality. Well, he, he doesn't he doesn't actually get he never gets charged. OK, so they, they get stopped or whatever. Chong Singh was never was never bothered by police again. Good for him. Good for him. It only took him three months of being tortured. Unfortunately. So lucky. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, there, there's, there's nothing you can say to make this good. It's like. No, uh-uh. it was bad. No. It sucked. And well, think about and this. Exactly. They never bothered, Look, him again, bothered him again. Three months. Is, it still sucked. Three months is nothing. Three months of being tortured is a long ass time, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So the police never bothered Chong Sing again, which, you know, as you said, is a good thing. And here's the deal. The press and the public never got to have their dramatic courtroom moment. They never got to see Leon Ling in handcuffs, right, brought into the courthouse. They never got the dramatic, uh, what's his name, Perry Mason confession on the stand. They never got the catharsis of a guilty verdict, right? Mm-hmm. After getting themselves all worked up, after the, the press got people all worked up about this murder, the public never got the catharsis that would be necessary. You know, like once you've become uh, so, you know, entwined with a story, you know, there is a need for a kind of public catharsis, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's how this works. By August of 1910, there was no more news of the manhunt, no more news of the murder investigation. And for Chinese Americans, they had hoped that the storm was over and they could just get on with their lives, right? Back to work. This ugly chapter behind them moving forward, like, you know, hope, hopefully with this, this in the past. But in August of 1910, more than a year after Elsie Siegel's body had been discovered in Leon Ling's apartment, the Lippin Theater in the Bowery announced the arrival of a new play, The Chinatown Trunk Mystery. Oh, they're going to capitalize now. News quickly spread, and Chinese organizations and individuals petitioned Mayor Gaynor to stop it for fear that it was going to reignite the witch hunt mm-hmm. they had endured the previous summer. They worried that a theatrical portrayal of the Siegel murder would be, quote, a common nuisance Inasmuch as both the malicious laying of the plot and the inflammatory language used, it is calculated to stir up racial animosity between the Chinese and the American people and disturb the peace and good order of the city, end quote. But the mayor found nothing indecent or immoral about it. Meanwhile, rumors swirled that the play would be made into a motion picture. It, it wasn't, but the rumors were out there and petitioners were like, people were very worried that it would be a movie. Mm-hmm. And petitioners flooded the mayor and district attorney's offices for some kind of redress against making it a motion picture if they wouldn't stop the play. So I want to say real quick, motion picture in 1909 is not, you know, Top Gun Maverick. Sure. Motion picture in 1909 is usually a short, silent right. film. No right? I mean, we're still very much in the yeah. silent era. We're not even we're not even at the place where we're making feature length movies yet. Correct. Um Birth of a Nation is 1914, I think, and that's three hours long. And that's like the first real epic kind of drama. 
that right. that makes the scream. So, um, I mean, racist and horrifying as it was. Um, I don't know if you know Birth of a Nation. No. Uh, you, you'd like it. The Klan emerges as the heroes of the movie. <laughs> Why would I like that? I'm not a Democrat. <laughs> the Klans are Democrats. Oh, I mean, that's that's such a dumb thing to say. About <laughs> but it's true. It is true. But Democrats today are hardly Democrats of uh, of 1870. They're hardly Democrats of 2000. Well, they were Northern Democrats and they were Southern Democrats and they were, they were different. Um you know, they were they, they had different philosophies. But, yeah, I mean, I, I hear you, but you're missing the the great transition from Democrat to Republican that happened among politicians, particularly in the wake of Barry Goldwater in 64, um, as a reaction to the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, where Southern Democrats left and joined the Republican Party. Strom Thurmond being the best example, but Jesse Helms, another really good one. The premier, the great premier of the Chinatown. <laughs> OK, so the play, yes. the play, the great tri- Chinatown trunk mystery. After its run in New York City, the play was booked in theaters around the country, spreading fear among Chinese residents in every community where it would be performed. Mm -hmm. Not surprisingly, communities with small Chinese populations would write to larger Chinese Mm -hmm. communities that, that were nearby in order to help them organize against the performances. By January 1911, the Chinatown trunk mystery had crossed the country and was in California, despite vigorous protests from Chinese residents near and far. It just reminds me in a capsule of what happens in today's world. Like uh, a a movie will come out, no controversy will have its people out there protesting, protesting. But at the end of the day, I'm assuming during this time of the run of the China, Chinatown trunk mystery, that really no violence broke out. It wasn't like left and right because of this, right? It was all a bunch of hysteria over nothing. But we're not going to really get into that. There, there are okay. some, there, there, like there are skirmishes, there are some fights, there are some things that happen. Anyway, right, so they, good run, good run for the trunk so industry. Here's Wraps the thing. up in California. Yeah, it's up in California. Here's the thing: the play wasn't exactly a hit in in the sense of like what we would think of a, a theatrical hit today. It, it broke no new barriers. There was no like lasting message, right? I mean, think about you know Shakespearean plays. It made money though. So I'm going to get to that. Yeah, it did make money. But like, okay. it's not like like Shakespeare, you know, we continue to perform Shakespeare even today. We continue sure. to perform lots of plays that are... No one's performing that. Nobody is performing this anymore. Like, so it didn't really last. Correct. It, was, it, it had its moment in time, but mm-hmm. it was a relatively short run of like about a year or so. All right. So it was popular, but, you know, people kind of lost interest because the case was no longer in the news. So it ran for about a year or so. And, and like I said, it did, it did, uh, did well financially but like not not in the long term it also wasn't very accurate the sets included according to the portland the daily news portland uh the newspaper in portland oregon quote an exact likeness of a mission school and an opium den of the oriental restaurant end quote yeah sure 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 so those were two of the sets two locations that we have no evidence that elsie siegel and leon ling ever went together (laughs) yeah so the play disregarded the fact that this was not part of the actual story and instead opted for the kind of sensationalist plot that seemed ripped from the headlines that were later challenged, right? Like those early headlines that were the most sensationalist. Right. And the play basically goes as if they're all true. It was a play about the necessity of white men to protect white women from the dangerous sexual appetites of Chinese men. It was a play about knowing one's social and geographical place and staying in it. It was a play about the dangers of straying outside the confines of, of a bourgeois moral and social order. And I think 
Maybe this is why people flock to see it. Excuse me. In the aftermath of a case Mm -hmm. that stirred up so many emotions but gave no resolution, I think maybe the China trunk, Chinatown trunk mystery provided the catharsis that people never got from, you know, what would have been a court case. I think audiences flocked to see the play, even though they knew the ending. Sure. But by watching the events of the case unfold in the way that they were presented in this sensationalized way, audiences were allowed to themselves kind of be the jury like you're about to do Mm -hmm. to tell to decide who committed the crime and how and why they were allowed in the theater of their minds to deliver justice in the case. Yep. They were able to get their catharsis that way. Most important, maybe. The play never forced them to confront or contemplate a world in which a respectable middle-class white woman might freely choose to become romantically involved with Chinese men. Instead, it allowed them to imagine a safer world where white men protected white women from the dangers of Chinatown, as long as the white women behaved as they should and did not stray from the patriarchal protection of their white saviors, like Elsie <laughs> Siegel had. And that's it. Well. That's the mystery of the Elsie Siegel murder? Mystery no more, my friend. Mystery no more. So so now you get to be the jury. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious what happened, but go ahead. We're very obvious. Um, this was a very passionate relationship between Lee and this Elsie, and what I think happened was Lee started to get a little jealous about Chu. Yep. And um, had a confrontation. That confrontation ended with Lee strangling Elsie and then asking his buddy Singh to help because dead weight's heavy. He needs help getting her into the case. He does. Sings just this poor innocent bastard who gets wrapped up in this. Lee then goes on the lamb. Singh is just kind of hanging out like, well, I didn't do anything. And when he finally does get caught, he doesn't want to put himself in the mix. He simply lies and says, well, I saw it all happen through the keyhole. He's making that shit up. And then he gets busted. And then he finally has to come clean and said, okay, you know, I was there. I helped, I helped dispose of the body or at least put it in a box. But that's it. And, you know, because of, I mean, look, he did break. That is illegal, I think. Right. He's lucky he got yes, off. I mean, if, if what you're saying were true and they had the evidence to suggest it, including, I mean, Singh said that he did that. He did. But if they thought that, that but if that confession were considered valid, they could have charged him as an accessory, sure. but they chose not to. Well, they chose not which to, I think, for a couple that, reasons. Because, well. If you recall the story about him stuffing her, helping stuff her into the chest, the police did not believe him. Right. Because they so thought there's something in his story they that they thought, didn't believe. They thought and they wanted to think and they wanted him to be the murderer. So by him saying, I helped, I helped, I, you know, I was this, I didn't really do it. They were like, nah, come on, man. You know, you did it. You know, you did it. Because it's every interrogation, every police. I've seen the next 48, 100 times. And it's like playbook 101. You know, the guy could be telling the truth. They're not just going to buy it, right? They're not just going to believe the first thing that comes out of the guy's mouth, right? So they're going to be skeptical. They're not going to believe him. And he's going to have to do his They didn't beat him enough. They thought maybe we haven't beaten him enough to tell the truth. Probably that too. But I think once um, – the, the amazing part about this story is what happened to Lee Ling. He's never seen again. 
This man, that's Leon. That's the main. That uh, is to me the main. That is the main uh, mystery. The main magnificent fact of this whole story that this man went on the lamb. He obviously had. I can't remember. Did he have money? Not really. He was like a waiter. So he must have had connections. I mean, we've we've both done that. You have a little money, but you're not like. I mean, you know, I mean, it's not like you you can't just just lamb it. Trust me, I would have done that. You don't have um, you don't have disappear no. money. I mean that that's what's so amazing to me. Now, Lee Ling sounds like he stands out. Um, is he? Do you know his height? I mean, they describe him as basically you know sexually irresistible. I mean, you does know. it say anything about his height in the story? Uh, I think it's in there. They they describe him pretty thoroughly. I I don't recall, okay. but um, I'm sure um, they have it. I'm sure. They I don't know it. if he. I mean, if they know that he carries a a. a he carries a pocket, like a watch pocket knife that has in, in uh, his initials engraved on it. And he carries it all the time. But the initials he engraved are WLL, William L. Le- Leon, his alias, which tells you that that's the name he usually went by. Now, don't William get Leon more than Leon wrong. Lin. Back then, it's, it's a lot easier to disappear than it is today. So, sure, um, sure, so, sure, sure. But sure. I think either he had to leave the country and go back to his homeland which is I think that would probably have happened. He found his way back or he just blended in. So he figured out a way to blend in with, you know, kind of disappear in, the, in plain sight. He went to a community of, of Asians, blended in and didn't stand out, didn't wear his handkerchief pockets and his like nice suits and wasn't banging every broad at the hostess stand. He was just like a regular waiter, um, you know, kind of probably made his haircut regular, you know, maybe. Well, you already had that. Well, you say, oh, you mean grew out the, yeah, grew out the Chinese blended it, and all that. Right? Like, maybe gained a, yeah, maybe gained a little weight. Maybe. That's the only thing I could think of because they, uh, you know, cut, cut him, cut himself and gave himself they were a thinking, cool scar. I mean, they, they were searching every, under every stone for this guy. Good granny. And I'm yeah. assuming that he yep. was still wanted after and, this all is said and, and done, right? He's still wanted. Sure, sure, sure. That doesn't go away. And, and part of the thing, like, that's part of why I did that long that long description of all the different people that get arrested in all of this, because like I wanted to point out how, I mean, how thoroughly they, they investigate every, I mean, anybody all over the country, you got people like, Hey, this guy dresses nice, <clears throat> you know? Um, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think that's an amazing part of the story is that this guy Lee can just vanish like that. Paul Houdini. Literally, we talked about Houdini a bunch, but yeah, I mean that's well, yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned Houdini. But I mean, you know me. I mean, I like to uh, I like to bring in all these different characters and stories that are, you know, your Mark Twain's, your Harry Houdini's, your Teddy Roosevelt's to kind of, you know, timestamp the story a bit, like you know, to put it in its context that, like, you know, this is happening at the same time that Mark Twain is complaining about, you know, Americans torturing right. people. You know, what I mean, this is happening at a yes. time where Mark Twain is around. Where where Teddy Roosevelt is around, you know, what I mean, I think it it helps contextualize Correct. when you. Uh, so, I mean, I like to, you know, with all these stories, I like to bring in some people that you've maybe heard of. I mean, you know, the uh, the Robin Johns, you know, we talked about uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing being written, you know, and all. Like, I like to wherever I can try and bring in some of these more famous figures, um, you know, just to, if for no other reason than to contextualize. Uh, the, the story we're telling, because obviously the stories that we're generally going to focus on, we will do some some famous people, but generally we're going to be talking about people that are a little less, uh, you know, right, a little right. less known. 
I, I agree. I think Leon Ling's disappearance is uh, a remarkable. Um, it's amazing, given that everybody in the world is looking for this dude. Yeah, he pulled he pulled a bulger, he pulled a bulger on us. A weighty bulger. He pulled a little weighty bulger on us. Except, except he got caught. He did. Uh, he made it sixteen years, and that's in today's world, which is pretty tough. He uh, he pulled a DB Cooper. Yeah, well, DB Cooper pulled a a Lee Ling. Because <laughs> <laughs> I. I I don't know if any. I mean, they say I, the latest special I saw. They think they know who he is, but I think he's dead. I'm sure he's dead, but but it's just it's a crazy story. There are a lot of crazy stories. Um. Anyway, real quick. So, not that you care. I use. I've done this before without you present, but since you're here, the primary source for this story was Mary Ting Yi Lui, the Chinatown trunk mystery, murder, miscegenation, and other dangerous encounters in turn of the century New York. Also, Jacob Reese, How the Other Half Lives, Studies Among the Tenements of New York. Obviously, various newspapers and magazines identified that we identified in the story. And much of the framework for understanding various issues in the story came from insights learned from the following. Robin Muncy's Creating a Female Dominion in American Reform, 1890 to 1935. Christine Stansell, City of Women, Sex and Class in New York, 1789 to 1860. Bruce Dorsey's Reforming Men and Women, Gender in the Antebellum City. Claire Lyons, Sex Among the Rabble, An Intimate History of Gender and Power in the Age of Revolution in Philadelphia, 1730 to 1830. There are the sources, uh, the primary sources being used in this episode. And that's that. So thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this unbalanced episode. And Mike, little teaser for next time. Next time, we're going to talk about a little disease history. Okay, cool. All right, well, you can find us on uh, Twitter at Views Unbalanced. You can email us at unbalancedviews at gmail.com. Thanks so much. 